Our story begins 25 years ago, in a distant land filled with magic, anthropomorphic beavers, conflicted dragons, and all sorts of other fantastical creatures. Every intelligent creature in the world heard The Voice, a psychic broadcast that promised unlimited wealth and power to whoever could break the Seven Seals. The Voice sparked a brief golden age of adventuring, with people of every cut of cloth traveling around the world trying to find out exactly what these Seven Seals were. Then war broke out between the dominant nation, the Red Kingdom, and the Unjanath, a secretive, isolationist culture of elves who lived in a forgotten, far-off corner of the world. That war waged on for nearly 20 years, with no one understanding how it started, until finally a peace treaty, brokered by Princess Ravello Red, brought an end to the hostilities. The princess disappeared shortly thereafter, and then the Unjanath retreated from their home, that remote corner of the world known as the Outlands. That brings us to today, where the Outlands Exploratory Company seeks to catalog the Outlands and uncover its secrets, discover its true nature, battle the powerful foes that live there, and simply try to stay alive week from week. Welcome back to Tales from the Outlands. My name is Christian Hoffer, and I am the host of this podcast, uh, which is about an 18-person Dungeons & Dragons campaign uh, inspired by the West Marches style of D&D. So, as always, I am joined by our producer, Luke Herr. Hello, everybody. And this week, our guest is uh, James Moore, who is a player in our campaign. Say hello, James. Hi, everybody. Uh, hello, James. Uh, how <laughs> hello. are you this this fine evening? I'm good. Got a cat currently squatting on top of me while I try to talk, and you know that's that's pretty normal around here. <laughs> uh, we so- have seen that cat before <laughs> in the game, and they are wonderful. <laughs> yes, yes. I was about to say, is it is it Wallace or is it uh, Marceline? It's it's pretty much always Wallace Wells who's going to be on top of me when people are talking. Marceline hides from people. Mm-hmm. Um, she almost never will appear on camera. Um, but when we talk about Cats for the Cockat Gods later, I will. Cats for the Cockat. Yes, exactly. My favorite, one of my favorite things. We will we will talk more about cats at that point. I think. Uh, so we've gotten a bunch of new followers on Twitter since we posted our last episode. For so for those of you who are new to listening to the show, uh, let's uh, let's explain what it's all about. This is not your usual Dungeons and Dragons podcast. Uh, there's two main styles of D and D podcasts. There's the uh, very popular Let's Play podcast in which you listen to people play Dungeons and Dragons. We don't do that. Uh, there is also the the podcasts about Dungeons and Dragons, about game mechanics and rules and news. We're not about that either. This is a D and D recap podcast. Uh, every week, uh, this campaign uh, that we play called uh, we call it the Outlands campaign. Uh, we play three sessions. Each group uh, has six players, and 
Uh, the campaigns are very closely intertwined. It is one continuous campaign that features uh, 18 players. And uh, the storylines uh, bounce from session to session. A lot of crazy things happen. A lot of moving pieces. And it's also a really fun experience. And so that's why we started this podcast. Before we get into things, uh, of course, I encourage everyone to help the show by following us on Twitter uh, at OutlandsPod, uh, and also subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever your podcast, uh, podcast listening service of choice is. You can also find our uh, every episode on our website, which is at uh, www.talesfromtheoutlands.com. And if you have been to the website, we're probably going to deactivate comments because it's mostly just spam bots, which is uh -huh. like 90%. But if you would like to leave us an actual comment before you uh, see that dark fate that awaits the comment section, uh, feel free. I didn't even know we had a comment section. Um, so... Every week, or every episode, excuse me, uh, we uh, divide the podcast usually into three parts. Uh, the first part is a recap. What has been going on in the Outlands campaign? Uh, the literal tales from the Outlands. Uh, we then go into a deep dive about some either lore, NPC, um, something that the guest uh, wants to know more about. Um, this week, we will be talking about Cartrum who is, uh, went from uh, neutral NPC <laughs> to one of the big bads of the campaign. And then we will end with uh, a character discussion about James's character, Dr. Worm, and we will dig deeply into everything about uh, our lovable sorcerer. So, let's get started. For those of you who haven't been listening... Uh, Outlands has been a pretty hop in place recently. First and foremost, a Feyrim is loose on, in the Outlands. The Feyrim are these ancient evil creatures that basically resemble um, wind socks with a stinger at the tail, uh, four arms, each with multiple elbows, and a giant gaping mouth. They're also skilled spellcasters, and they're, they exist to consume and destroy everything. Long ago, the Feyrim were locked up uh, in the Outlands in the place known as the Pit of the Feyrim, uh, sealed away behind the Sharn Wall, uh, which has been uh, strengthened uh, or kept intact all these years by seven seals, the seven seals that you heard about in our intro. Uh, however, recently, the Arms of Paradise, led by a uh, one core who uh, everyone here knows pretty well as he used to be played by <laughs> Luke Kerr back in the day um, freed this ancient evil from the place where it was buried uh, a singular Faerim uh, that was buried away in a place known as the Fields of Thunder in addition to this uh, the adventurers of the Outlands Exploratory Company have been tasked with retrieving several cat idols on behalf of the mysterious cat god the cat she uh, boons are granted to those who retrieve the idols, which are all scattered about the Outlands. To date, two of the idols have been secured and three remain missing. In addition, the terror team, the group that plays on Fridays, barely survived an encounter 
with the Shadow Court, a group of mind flayers who have conquered the Feywild. Uh, the Shadow Court came out during the Horned Moon Festival and attacked the tiny halfling village of Granacht. Uh, after some close encounters, uh, a couple of near deaths, uh, the party managed to rescue the villagers and get them away with the help of the Great Goat of the Woods, this mysterious entity who ended up being a uh, former archfey uh, who was caught in between a state of life and death. Finally, the Buddy Brigade suffered their own near disaster at a place known as the Cliffside Monolith uh, when the adventurer Illyria basically would have died had not for um, uh, some internal campaign rules. Um, additionally, this has just been the latest in a series of traumatic uh, incidents and episodes involving the Buddy Brigade, which seems to leave the have the group a bit frayed around the edges, as several members seem to be going through their own things. <laughs> uh, so the first thing that we will talk about is the Great Feyrim Hunt. A, uh, a mini-event, uh, usually our events kind of um, involve all three uh, groups, but this was more of a, a mission that two groups participated in, and one of those groups was the Buddy Brigade, which features Luke and James. So, Luke and James, why don't you tell us a little bit about it? James, you listened to both parts of the uh, session. You get you have a pretty good idea of what went down during the Favorim hunt. Yeah, it's actually pretty straightforward. We're we're kind of at a I think a point in the campaign where like I compare it to the uh, like mid period Chris Claremont where the subplot and character stuff are like really driving things, and like the bigger events are just kind of like context. Um, I and, think that's fair. Yeah, like and so the Faerun hunt I think we went into for different reasons for each party, but. Um, well, the the terror team, you know, they're they're kind of the ones that are driven mostly by protecting the outlands, right? Uh, and and the Faerim represent possibly the biggest threat to the outlands. So yeah, there were reasons for going into the sunken swamp was pretty straightforward. But the Buddy Brigade, on the other hand, they had uh, <laughs> some ulterior motives. We had a lot of motives. Like for instance, uh, so this the hooligan have actually been kind of like a big recurring thing for me. Um, Eventually, I chose to learn the language um, because we kept running into them, and like it was clear that they were sentient. So, um, and once we talked to them, it turned out they had some pretty useful knowledge in terms of the the seals, and also how to cure our beloved NPC Reef, who you've talked about, the wear shark, you've talked about in previous episodes, I believe um that the the priest that the sahuligan have um supposedly have a way to cure him the sahuligan are worshippers of okair the two-tailed whale <laughs> yeah. and that is um you know uh the were shark that bit re and turned him into a were shark was also a follower of that same god and the only way to remove that curse is basically through the intercession of a priest or worshipper of that deity yep and so you know we were on one part motivated to help put re in the good graces of the sahuligan so that hopefully they'd be more inclined to cure him we wanted to get re away from camp so that he wasn't around uh, mara who i believe has also been discussed in previous episodes who is 
up to secretive no good. Um, <laughs> which again, which, understatement. Which which again ties into our lore later today, actually, um, mm-hmm. kind of indirectly. Um, also, you know, being in the Sahuligans' good graces is a way to learn about the seals eventually. At least I hope so. And you know, there are also people that live right next door to the Outlands, to our outpost. And, you know, you kind of want them to not die and to be our allies. We actually just, the Toon Squad, was it the Toon Squad who recently uh, yes. made peace with them? Yes, yeah. it was the Toon Squad who kind of uh, put forth a uh, non-aggression pact uh, with with the uh, with the Sahuagin. Who The Sahuagin, uh, their numbers were depleted. This is a group that originated in the elemental plane of water. Um, they were early, um, antagonists of the campaign, um, a recurring threat, uh, actually mostly due to what the, the, the adventurers did, not the other way around, but basically they, they had lost so many people in their, uh, skirmishes with the Outlands Exploratory Company. They had kind of faded to the background until recently. Yeah. And we had... Well, we wanted to, you know, protect the Outlands is part of the reason why we were going on the Faerun hunt, but it also had all those, like, side things that it kind of ticked off, and that's one of the reasons. I'd, I'd pushed for it for a couple weeks, and then we were finally yeah. we were finally able to do it. And, you know, that mission basically came down to terror team, went and chased a big one, mm-hmm. and fought and killed it with um, another one of the... Was it one or two of the heralds? Uh, it was one herald. They had to deal. Well, they weren't actually heralds. You guys have yet to actually experience one of the heralds. You you will know um, <laughs> when you guys encounter the, some the... of the heralds of the Faerim. But they fought um, a. Uh, it was the ice goose, I believe, uh, yeah. an ice goose. The which... the let. Well, I thought we were. Were we the ice goose? No, no we they were ice goose and a thunder boar. Yes. Okay. Uh, no, you fought the Thunder Stag because uh, it was a thun- Thunder Stag Salt Boar. So uh, the yeah, the Salt Boar was it. It was Thunder Stag and Goose for us. Yes. We did not fight a Salt Boar there. Yes, okay. the Salt Boar. So so providing a little bit of context here, uh, the Faerim, uh, while they have been enclosed uh, behind uh, the this um, you know the Sharn Wall for a millennia. Uh, they still do have active agents out there in the, the multiverse. Um, uh, the most powerful of them are known as the Heralds of the Faerim, which are sort of these elemental creatures. Um, they're still very mysterious. Um, don't know a lot about them, but they are capable of some really powerful magic. And they often send uh, avatars of themselves into the Outlands to, to muck about. Um, and so uh, the three of them, there are technically four, but the fourth one, uh, the, which is uh, the Bone Taker, which we talked about last week, uh, defected. Uh, the other three are known as Barum Barum, uh, the Quake Hoof, um, Nyaro, the Hissing Wind, and um, oh, for the life of me, I cannot remember the third one. I cannot rem- even remember my own lore. If only we had some sort of database on the internet that i could turn to oh here it is it's uh <laughs> arju the drying death oh what a coincidence we do have 
our very own database uh, on the internet, which, which is you publicly too can available. find in the mm -hmm. comments section or in the description of the episode. There um, is also a link at the top of the page, and I feel like it's something where we could probably just drop random links to articles on a regular basis. Yeah, yeah, you're, you you raise a valid point. Yeah, well, I have been on Twitter every once in a while. Anyways, um, so, um, but yes, uh, the, the terror team went and fought the big Faerim. Yeah. Uh, so what you guys discovered was that the, the Faerim had been breeding and actually um, basically implanted eggs into some dead Sahuagin that uh, the Faerim had previously killed. And then those Faerim uh, kind of went in a different direction than the main Faerim. Yeah, they went underneath the sunken the swamp mound, the great swamp mound. Yes, the ancient swamp mound. That's correct. Mound. Um, and we're trying to chew the tree, which is magic that's holding the giant Faerim. Yes. And then, so, so then we had to kill the babies, which again the Bay Brigade had to kill babies. Um, and then they are they okay. <laughs> I mean, like you like, know, like, that's like, that's like saying that's like, like saying that poster, like yeah. maggots are babies, you know, I mean, or grubs are. are babies. Um, you know, technically babies. Technically correct, but you know, no, <laughs> not the same. Um, <laughs> uh, you know. Uh, so the ancient swamp mound, uh, for context, um, several of these Faerim um, were basically. Um, separately entrapped in these different ancient structures to create a a network of um uh, magic enhancement for lack of a better term and those who know how to access it um basically can do some pretty crazy magical things and it's all driven by the latent evil magic of the Faerim. and so uh the groups have encountered several of these locations before and they recently discovered that the ancient swamp mound was another one of these where a Faerim was basically uh kept in a state of suspended animation intertwined with the roots of um uh, of a, a tree basically anyway so yes you killed babies uh the terror team had to deal with the adult one which you know that that was a that was a slobber knocker of a fight if i do have to <laughs> if i do say so myself didn't one of the players almost get turned assault by the boar uh had um like it was like yes. one, if there had been one more turn or something and the boar hadn't died yes uh so the salt boars the uh, kind of special ability is that you know it can gore somebody and if you choose to, and, you know, you're grappled by the, the, when you get gored, and if you choose to stay in the grapple and just let this creature who literally transforms organic matter into salt, and the party has seen this several times, then, um, yeah, if you let the salt boar, you know, stay, you know, keep on piercing you, your body's going to start transforming into salt. So it, it had the, the prospect of being uh, not very good. But that didn't come to pass, so it's all good. Um, so the the fights themselves weren't particularly difficult. At least I don't think they were. You know, they they were not like um, real nail biters. You know, there are a couple. They're slightly dangerous, but you know, uh, nothing. Not like the spiders on the cliffside monolith. <laughs> well, in our case, we did bring Re the Were Shark along, and that was useful. 
and then flop arm made him gigantic. So then we had mm-hmm. a giant wear shark that pretty much squished one of the bugs. Yes. It was great. <laughs> uh, you, know, you don't need to worry about flying creatures when you've got 15 feet of height and a 15 foot roof. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, <laughs> it's pretty cool. Every time flop arm uses that in spell on someone, it is always hilarious and like does a lot of damage. You know, it doesn't do as much damage as you think, but it, it certainly, because it only adds like a, a D4, but it basically means they're going to pass all their strength checks. They are mm-hmm. capable of doing some pretty crazy things <laughs> when when uh, running around, uh, you know, extra size, because it only actually adds an extra D4 to it, like melee attacks, which, you know, it's a little bit, but you think should be more. I, I feel like it's better, though, than, like, in Pathfinder's previous edition, where it's just like, oh, we gotta fight some demons? All right, we're going to make our paladin giant size, so he's doing, like, D, uh, like 48s of damage with his broadsword, and you're just cutting through everything. Yeah, no, I, I agree. The 5th the edition version of Enlarge, you know, um, was definitely a response to some shenanigans that took place. <laughs> Um, in previous edition so the fights themselves weren't the most worrisome part of the uh of this two-part event it's what came after the fights oh you mean the magical prophecy that came is like oh hey the summer of blood is coming up it's going to be real nasty <laughs> yeah yep. uh so uh the fey realm um and all three groups eventually heard this prophecy uh the the buddy brigade and the uh, terror team heard it at the same time. Uh, heard this prophecy delivered by the Feyrim, and uh, I'll, I'll just I'll just read this, the prophecy so we don't beat around the bush. Uh, so the fe- uh, the prophecy is as follows: uh, three must be broken, uh, one broken years ago, one broken now, one yet to break. Three must be broken, one stored by spirits, one imprisoned by tentacle invaders. One gripped by a gauntlet of blades, one kept in a mechanical canyon, one enclosed in the last stronghold of elves. Three must be broken. The arms, the heralds, the vampire. Three come for the last seal. Three paths to freedom. The warriors, the providers, the fools. Three paths to protect the plain. The summer of blood approaches. Three must be broken. Not ominous at all. <laughs> Especially as delivered by Cthulhu bugs. <laughs> so, uh, you know, this this was the, you know, kind of recentering of the campaign, in my opinion. Uh, this was the moment that, you know, everyone kind of realized that, oh, yeah, we've been, we, we have we have a plot that needs to be dealt with here. Um, what you guys? What what do you guys make of this prophecy? Uh, Flop arm is five and does not have the contextual awareness to really <laughs> think about it. Uh, so I mean, I I role play hard as Flop arm, and you know, nobody explains nothing to that kid. That is a that the explain to Flop. We'll get we'll get to explain things to Flop arm later. I think. Um, he definitely needs more context, but uh, I don't think he does. 
No, I think it would make things actively worse if you tell a <laughs> five-year-old, if we don't stop this thing, all of us are going to die. Letting him stay in his world of, you're a five-year-old, you just want to go on fun adventures everywhere, is like the good thing to do if this kid somehow keeps getting permission and ending up on missions. We'll get to Flop Farm. <laughs> That's a whole other thing. Um, so for me, I actually, I, I tend to play Dr. Worm or somebody who does pay attention to stuff and is actively like trying to understand the, the and investigate the world around him. And also just me as a player, I like to, to, to think about that stuff. So a lot of this is, there's connections we can, we can, we know. Um, the one bro- seal broken years ago is the seal of water that created the, the, giant hole in the earth that's the sunken swamp now um and then the one that was just broken is the seal of the bestial plane i don't know if that's the right term but um but but james we haven't talked about the seal of nature getting broken when did that happen uh apparently between our Faerim hunt and the toon squad's mission on tuesday (laughs) um which uh, we'll, we'll, we can talk about the since we're going to talk about that one later we can talk about the effects of that um, but we did have some there was a mission in the bestial plane that the toon squad had done previously where they where they got the bicorn that just yes. died yeah. um, so we do have some context for the bestial plane in the campaign um, the one yet to break uh, it hasn't broken yet so it could be it could be any of the ones that we're about to talk about and then the three must be broken part is Presumably that releases the Faerim. One stored by spirits is the Seal of Air in the Ancient Bank, which the Buddy Brigade rescued. Well, it was, um, it was a group effort, but yes, you okay. were the ones who put hands we, on it. We were the ones who literally went into the Plane of Air and got the seal, though, and then put it in the and had and put it in the bank, which we did the bank mission too. Well, so. you know, if you're if you're going to if you're going to try to you know minimize the contributions of the other campaigns, really, it was Latorin. Who who did all the work? No, Latorin deserves a lot of credit on that one. Um, that As was being a, the one person who got permission, but we don't need to restart the debate again. R.I.P. Cleaver. That was that was a great mission. I wish I, one of those missions. I wish we had time to talk about um, because it's such a great character moment for so many of those characters and maybe when we talk about the buddy grade later we'll talk about that moment but anyway but there's the spirits are the bank spirits um or the bank spirit uh the one by the tentacled invaders is the um clockwork army no nautilus isn't it no no okay then if it's not the clockwork army nautilus then i would guess it's the uh um that one was the one that was the seal of nature, the one that was connected oh, okay. to the beast. Yeah. Planets. Oh yeah, you're right. No, so then it has to be the uh, shadow court. Um, well, they are tentacled invaders. Yep. One grip by the gauntlet of blades. Um, I don't know for sure, but there is a sawblade labyrinth that we've all been afraid to go into after we went into the wicker maze. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I think that's probably there. The mechanical canyon is that the name of that canyon we actually found that we couldn't get like into. Like the big murder hall. Uh, it wasn't a murder hall. It was like a uh, every time you there tried, like, you tried to enter uh, it and it would kick you out. And then I think we 
got it angry enough that it was like, we're sending security forces and we all just skedaddled yep. out of there. Yep. So I think that one's that one. I don't know. And I would guess the seal of Mechanus or Order or whatever it is was probably there. Yep. The seal of, the, the seal of Order is what it's technically called, but it is the seal that is connected to Mechanus, which is a... A much beloved plane uh, in Dungeons and Dragons. The last stronghold of elves is we've learned that the Unjanath are hidden in a forest somewhere, and the terror team found out that they have the Seal of Earth, which thankfully saved us from completing the Trials of Stone, <laughs> um, which we would have dumbly done had we continued had not known that. Uh, well, I guess now we wouldn't do that because of things we're going to talk about later. Yeah, three must be broken. Same thing. Arms, heralds, vampires are the big forces that are trying to get the seals that we know of. Uh, Assuming the three paths to freedom is about the Faerun getting free? Yeah, it's because there's three different de- groups that are, you know, trying to get yeah. the seals. So if any one of them get get one of the seals, you know, the, the Faerun are free. Fair enough. I really am not sure of the warriors, the providers, the fools. Like, in theory, it's the three parties... But there's at least two candidates for fools, and I'm not sure what the providers would be. So <laughs> I don't know how that breaks down. Well, you're, you're right. Uh, so the warriors obviously are the terror team. Uh-huh. Uh, the, the buddy brigade is, you know, the providers. Um, you know, you, you guys are the ones who kind of provide aid and comfort. Um, That's at least hypothetically. You, you, you used to do that more so back when you guys had the, you know, Got the Buddy Brigade name. Recently, you guys have not been doing so much of that, but, you know. The prophecy hasn't been updated since it was written. They were <laughs> yeah. just trying to figure out a few rhymes. I mean, our, in the spirit, that hasn't changed, but, like, we've just been dealing with, like, the complications that have been occurring in the various things that are happening now. So And, and the fools are the Toon Squad. Okay. I mean, I think even the Toon Squad would, <laughs> would call themselves that. Uh, you know, we're, we're discussing a couple of, you know, uh, you know, some sessions that took place a couple of weeks ago. And, um, when we talk about, this will be the next episode. Um, uh, when we talk about the, their, uh, battle against the clockwork army. <laughs> yeah. I have, I have never witnessed a combat be so perilously close to disaster. It was um, a nail biter. Anyway, you'll talk about that next week, though. That is yeah, it. that'll be the next episode. Next episode is going to be a doozy. You guys have a lot to talk about already, and two th- one third of it hasn't even happened yet, and it's already a lot. <laughs> um, the paths to protect the planes are basically, I assume, it's the three things that we have to actually protect to not open the plane, and obviously, summer blood approaches is the overall kind of arc, I guess. Or Dawn of X. <laughs> Man, I love yeah, Dawn no, of you X. got you. You basically got the gist of it. It's uh, basically the primary mission for the remainder of this um, let's call it phase of the campaign will be to protect the uh, remaining five seals, uh, one of which you guys already have protected pretty well. Yeah, that bank is that bank is pretty good. He's a very rude banker, but he is very secure. Uh yeah, see, truly he is a banker then. Um, <laughs> I mean, I don't have the I I personally, my Doctor Worm does not have the same animosity 
that the others did because he's the only one who did not get sucked into a empty void and you know he's also not got ellie's specific issues with him so oh well so the banker so the 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 banker is a a an actual spirit it is the embodiment of an ancient bank uh that exists in a ruined city um and he he is a a rather prickly spirit um who uh, managed to really push some buttons you know the last few times that people have encountered him um he he is he does not hold back coincidentally the dm is also a banker (laughs) yep uh so in addition to the favorim hunt which was you know a big moment uh the toon squad who has just been you know to their credit they have just survived a pretty harrowing month-long um I don't even know what the heck to call that. Um, excursion where, you know, trying to find a dragon so a vampire wouldn't kill them. Uh, so they'd wanted a week off. So they did what every adventuring group does when they need a week off. And that is they go on a cat god mission. Cats for the cat god. Cats for the cat, cats god. For the cat god. Cats for the cat god. <laughs> so... Uh, they, uh, previously a, a temple with cat ears was discovered in the Gush Hills, and so the Toon Squad went off to explore it. While the, the mission itself was a pretty low-stakes one, you know, they, they had some hints that things, things were amiss in the Outlands. For, the most notable was that they ran into a group of Braided Branches Rangers, which is this secret group of rangers who live in the outlands and kind of have a nebulous purpose you know no one really knows what they're doing a lot of people have clues they're good people um you know uh, ellie windrow who is our recurring npc is a member of the braided branches um and so but the braided branches were heading north because something had happened at the pit of the fey Rim. Uh, also uh they met a talking monkey <laughs> they sure did. Yes, they they met a talking monkey. The first of uh, well, actually not the first, the second of uh, several awakened animals that seem to be popping up uh, in the Outlands with increasing regularity. I wonder what the deal with that is. So, uh, hmm, maybe it's something to do with the broken seal of the bestial plane. Oh, oh my, that's. Well, you know, at least, you know, they're, you know, all of the animals in the Outlands didn't just suddenly, like, have a mass extinction or something because the seal broke and broke, you know? Talking animals, what's the worst that could happen there? Just a bunch of suddenly <laughs> aware creatures living out in the wild. Cleaver gets to save a fell slot before asking animals uh, if they want to be eaten. <laughs> <They're>... <laughs> or, well, she would. R.I.P. Cleaver. I mean, it definitely won't devolve into a Planet of the Apes type situation, so... Uh, I actually hadn't considered that, but... <laughs> or King Kong vs. Godzilla. We actually did do that. So, well, I know, uh... I was the hat. <laughs> another another tease for next week. Um, the, uh, no, that's that's actually on tonight's, uh, oh, that's yeah, on tonight's guess... agenda. Okay, yeah, yeah, you're right. Sorry, I forgot we're <laughs> adding, like, an extra one. So when the party got to the cat eared temple, um, their job, uh, you know, each of these 
cat idol quests involve some sort of strange challenge to show that they have the 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 will of the cat in this case their job was to take a large stone cylinder that was hollowed out and to push it off of a platform but they had to do so while fighting water elementals this sounds like a challenging encounter but it is much <laughs> less challenging when one member has the ability to transform water which was in abundant supply in this temple into ice and another person has telekinetic abilities beautiful it was the the encounter itself like literally was over in like 30 seconds <laughs> it was amazingly short i do love those sorts of puzzles in D. &D. you know i i have not especially in this campaign i really haven't had like the players get one on me and that 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 was the first time that i was really like well i totally forgot about this very obvious core ability of one of the players <laughs> yeah oh well you know what not every session needs to be a life or death situation of course at the end of that session they too heard the seal prophecy and the Toon Squad realized that the, the, the seal that a member of their party, uh, Kalen, had kind of been like harping on them for several months. Um, yeah, she, she was probably right about, you know, maybe they should have tried to collect the seal or done something to find the seal. They were busy cleaning up their other mess. Fair, that, that <laughs> is a fair point. Like, they had immediate death threat hanging above their head. So, you know. So speaking of messes that need cleaned up. <laughs> wait, 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 before we get to that, before we get to that, uh, I did there's another cats for the cat cat thing that you guys didn't talk about that you guys didn't talk about the last time that I want to mention uh -oh. that I think is fun. Uh, no, just that it has spawned its own channel in our like group Slack where like because what like a third to a half of the players in this giant campaign are like people with cats. Right, probably even more than that. Oh yeah, probably yeah. More. like like a lot of cat people in this group. So we basically just have like a cats for the cat god thread where we post pictures of our adorable cats uh, and enjoy those. Let's say I'm I'm looking down the list. I see one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. 11, 12. 12. So two thirds and two other people in the campaign, both Jasons, are allergic to cats. <laughs> I didn't realize both Jasons were allergic to cats. Yeah, Jason, that, that was the great irony of uh, Jason Murray the cat. Oh, that is, is that that Jason is, Murray the human. That is, is funny. allergic to Jason Murray the cat. It's, yeah. Jason Murray the cat is, is a cat named after. One of the players in our campaign and is owned by another member uh, of our campaign. <laughs> yeah, um, that uh, I was actually the one. I, I was actually the one who named Jason Murray the cat. <laughs> I remember that. Yeah. So like, yeah, we should we should share those. And those cats tend to pop up on our Zoom chats a lot. Like again, at least one of mine, the sixteen-pound chunky orange one, likes to likes to pop up and like visit. 
but so do other people's cats. And that's just the thing I think is kind of neat about this campaign that's just like a total side thing, but it's super fun. Anyway, drama time, I guess. Nah, yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, uh, this this doesn't necessarily have anything to do with um, a set one singular session, but this has kind of been building to for a long time. Um, we'll talk more about the actual mission next in our next episode. Uh, as um, the three groups currently, as we are recording this, are participating in a uh, mega event involving the Clockwork Army, which is an army of clockwork constructs uh, that are responsible for breaking the seal and also attacking the outpost, uh, a real rivalry that's been months in the making. Uh, At the end of the first part of that event, which involves um, the, the Buddy Brigade, the session ended with, I think, I, I I have no problem saying this. I think the Buddy Brigade is at their lowest point. Mm-hmm. Maybe? Uh, no, uh, I mean, even Kor's death came with a promise, or with a reminder that he did care for everybody in the party and wanted them to be happy and to live lives. Like, that was part of the reason for his sacrifice, and what happened here? The fracturing of the Buddy Brigade can be pinned on one child-tripping asshole. <laughs> See, like I said, I don't think it's a splintering. I think it's, the, the party is very much united against one character. I mm-hmm. see, see you, you guys say that, but, you know, it's not just one one incident. So let, let's run down what's going down with the, the Buddy Brigade. The, the incidents that they're referencing is... Uh, in our last episode, uh, we had Kenon, who placed two characters. One is the lovable artificer, Kovir. His other character is not quite so lovable. She is a, uh, she is a rogue named Yuria. And um, rogue, in this case, she, she's not a thief. She is uh, something else, let's say. And she may have an ulterior motive. For being in the Outlands, and um, well, that 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 might have gotten aired out a little bit. She she also really has a problem with how the the rest of the Buddy Brigade uh, functions. You know how how they 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 act. Um, they're you know I think kind of their like unfocused uh, nature. Um, she doesn't like us being all buddy buddy. I can see that. So, so Yuria has been, you know, kind of at odds with the rest of the party, um, especially Floparm, who is a five-year-old child doing five-year-old <laughs> child things. Now, uh, when the group went into the Clockwork Army's headquarters, and once again, we'll talk more about it later, uh, Floparm attempted to run into the first room that he could find, um, and Yuria tripped him and probably saved his life. I mean, you know, it, there were two turrets shooting giant harpoons. I mean, Flopper was pretty sturdy, though. He's mm-hmm. a five-year-old kid. I, like, think, th- let's... I think he's got, like, the second highest hit points, though, of, like, or third of our entire party. Because he's Especially made when he puts, he puts on the shield instead of transforming into dinosaurs, which 
he would love to do, but he has some level of consciousness that he should not turn into dinosaurs at inopportune moments. I mean, he still shouldn't be running into turrets, but like, but like, he could handle it more than probably a lot of us. I mean, maybe not oh, me. That... I'm, I actually have pretty good hit points too. Well, well <laughs> but it, it's also if you see a child running to danger, and you have so many options, and your response to that is, "I want to trip flop arm," not "I want to grab him," or "I want to tell him to stop." Yeah, That's... the the trip the tripping's not good. No, but to be fair, Yuri is kind of your like as previously established. Yuri is kind of a jerk. Yeah, yeah. like and not in a fun way, like Cleaver. Like yeah, yeah, no, exactly. That's the thing is like uh, so I let me let me at least talk about how why Doctor Worm didn't trust her to begin with. So I think that's mm-hmm. that's kind of a thing. We're we're skipping over the part where Flop Arm nearly got you guys killed, right? Yeah, uh, we, we can, can talk about, about that. We can week. talk about that too. But since we talk about why why Yuri is generally kind of a problem, let's let's we'll say why. Like, cause I cause I think I was more vocal about it before, and and you know, and Ken knew that. Ken even like asked me like, "Does Doctor Worm still viewing her with distrust?" And I was like, "Yeah." Um, but like when she kind of came on, at first it seemed like she was. Like, I assumed it was an intentionally kind of a blander character because Kovir was kind of like the main one, but Yuria was just like who he plugged in for missions that didn't make sense for uh, Kovir. But, like, what I came to realize, though, was something was weird in that, like, she didn't seem to have any motivation that made sense because she hated the buddy brigade stuff. Like, the, 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 the general, like, trying to, you know, make the world a better place kind of thing. But she also didn't have obviously selfish motivations, like she didn't seem to want treasure or like any of those kind of things. So like that was kind of weird. And then she in the void pool mission, when everybody's trying to figure out how to like save uh, Cleaver and Mama, and then well, and then Malkador, um, and that rabbit. Yeah, and the rabbit. Well, no, they said in the rabbit as a as a test. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, Yuria kind of went off on everybody and was like, you guys can do whatever you dumb thing you're going to do, but I'm not going to be a part of this because I don't care. And I was like, mm, no, because both Dr. Worm, the player and, and James, the person are both pretty protective of the buddy brigade as an entity. Like, I think it's actually kind of a good thing, um, which again, we can dial back as we, as we explain all the other situations, but like, after that point, like, Yuria would just rang all the bells. And that was before Ken just kind of, like, meta told us about what was going on. So, you know, so obviously there's these issues that involve Yuria. Then let's, now now let's talk about, you know, what I feel is kind of, you know, um, on a meta level, I understand, obviously, you know, Luke wanted to play a five-year-old character, and I allowed it. So there was now a five-year-old character in the campaign. But let's talk about the judgment, you know, the decision-making that went in, you know, on, on the in a character level that led to a five-year-old being brought into a submarine. Um, <laughs> Did you want me to make a third character, Christian? <laughs> or a fourth character? I'm just, I'm just, I'm just saying from a meta level, you know, um, uh, the... I, again, 
this is one of those things where there's a like uh, from the dm's perspective i i totally understand like it's not like every week the players you know the players are going to be like okay guys we're bringing a five-year-old into this incredibly dangerous mission how are we going to protect the child that really needs to be our priority <laughs> I, well, um, I, think, I think i think on a, on a character level like the child has been very capable in combat, to be honest. You guys... <laughs> the child is saving the party several times. The, the, like... well, I was about to say, the child represents the most healing we've ever had. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's, it's you know, like, on the one level, it's not like the characters have a have a choice. Like, I don't think Dr. Worm's like, yeah, let's bring a five-year-old. Um, but, you know, like, they don't have the option to make the child stay at home either i mean they could try i i'm willing to role play what happens if you try and go and talk to flop arms parents who have been mentioned several times but who have yet to actually appear in the op and the uh actions uh, uh let's be real I'm a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a childless person in real life and i don't really know a ton about five-year-olds to be honest like i'm around them i've around my friends kids briefly but like taking care of one is not really in my experience set so you know as as a parent to an <laughs> oh, actual five-year-old five <laughs> yeah. i i can say that you know had you after the first mission that Flop Arm went along with, well, you know, the first mission was wasn't that the date, uh, mm -hmm. the Ashmaker date? Okay, that one you probably could have gone away with, um, but one of the next ones, you know, between the mission into the Underdark, the Spider mission, there's you know a couple other ones. Your your judgment, you know, as as characters, not as players, because you know, uh, once again, on a on a meta level. I understand. But on a character level, your decision making, your 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 ability to make sound decisions is definitely being called into the question. And this finally came back to bite you guys in the butt. You know, because flop arm has been very useful. I this is not a knock on on Luke, because we I am delighted by flop arm and his his shenanigans. Did, did um, you see that flop arm literally haunted my dreams this week? Yeah. <laughs> Dear God. Like, I literally had a dream where, like, somehow, like, Floparm was, like, disguising himself as a human child, and I had to, like, take care of him at the zoo. And, like, it led to, like, having to chase him around and stuff. And then he, like, went into a basement somehow, and he tried to change into one of my cats, but, like, he didn't do it right, and it looked weird. <laughs> <laughs> and that was supposed to be remember. So, like, literally, Floparm's shenanigans are now, like, haunting my dreams. <laughs> Flop arm is my dimensional Grant Morrison s creation. Uh, I mean, I, I am a giant Grant Morrison fan, so. Uh, but uh, you know, but Flop arm, you know, after several weeks of usefulness, was decidedly less useful uh, during the Clockwork Army. Um, you know, as as he pushed a button, uh, opening up a bunch of uh, a room filled with Clockwork Army constructs you know, who, who managed to take out both flop arm and Yuria, you know, who were in the middle of a feud um, <laughs> during this entire fight. I do also want to point out here that you gave us a hallway with eight other identical doors. And then one other door that we knew 
we probably had to go to during the mission. And yeah, flop arm acting through me did 100% randomly choose a door and was like, second one on the left, that's one we're going for. Because I knew that we were probably going to have a chance to get treasure in here and was like, you know what? Flop arm is not going to be controlled here. I can't control him. He is going to open that door. And then after, I was just pissed off at what Flop arm did because Buddy Brigade does not get treasure. It's like you got the people doing the cat missions all the time, getting the treasure. You got other people getting treasure. Buddy Brigade does not get we the treasure. Never get the freaking treasure. Mm-hmm. Like is- even the last time uh, when we raided the tower for the seal, we didn't get the treasure there because we were afraid of stealing the bow. Yeah, no. We're focused on the mission, like, is the thing. Like, we're like, okay, this is the thing we have to do. Oh, so wait. I... Cleaver Cleaver did get the refreezing ring, but then Cleaver gave that ring to Malkador. <laughs> <laughs> oh, guys. I can't wait uh... to see what happens when Cleaver and Malkador emerge from the Shadowfell. They're dead. They're all dead. Maybe they're married. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Do I hear shipping? I mean, that's not the number one ship. We can talk about the number one ship later. Um, but <laughs> probably, probably not tonight. We're we're already running an uh, an hour into this thing. Um, I, I I did pull up the 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 treasure uh, that you guys would have gotten. Um, so, um, there was a bracer of flying daggers, um, a helm of the gods with different, that had the ability to cast five different spells, one each, um, that's based on, uh, you know, different, each one of the different gods of the Sharn Pantheon, and a, uh, an interesting amulet that, uh, amulet that I won't talk about because it's spoilery. Okay, so we're just going to have to get back with the Coral Drake and go and raid the ruins of the ship. That's fine. It, the, the ship literally blew up. Anyways, so, you know, so there's Flop Arm pushing buttons, Yuria pushing metaphorical buttons. Then we have Ellie, who Ellie's gone through, you know, on the side, you know, both the last two Buddy Brigade sessions has, um, you know been pretty traumatic for her. Uh, if you listen to our first uh our first regular episode uh shay's character ellie you know um came to the outlands in search of her parents well she found one uh it was the npc billis who billis is um you know kind of um a sad sack ex-soldier who spent the better part of his life uh being pr- imprisoned by the unjanoth um turns out that during that process he may have had a uh, encounter shall we say um with one of the unjanath and that may have produced a child the the big thing that you know is really ramping up the angst is that ellie's one possession uh, a blanket with the name alaria on it does not that that the name alaria isn't hers it belongs to her half sister who um you know, is uh, Ellie Windrow. And that, I think, just, you know, uh, mentally broke uh, Scout Ellie. <laughs> um, Ellie's Ellie's going through some shit right now. Monk, Monk Ellie. 
Monk Ellie, yes, yeah, uh, uh, the Buddy Brigade's Ellie. So yeah. she's um she's in a pretty dark place right now, and she's lashing out at Billis, who Billis only just found out that he was a dad like a week ago. Before that, he was in a coma. Before that, he had been taken over by an Avalith. Before that, he had been imprisoned by some Sahuigan. And before that, he had been imprisoned by the Unjanath. He has not had a good life. Nope. Um, and so, basically worst case scenario as her dad um and finally you know illyria she nearly died uh at the cliffside monolith for all intents and purposes she should have died and she's now having these strange dreams of something about a cave but you know that that can't be good you know so the two most well-adjusted members are dr worm and latorin who previously um had uh been party to a genocide um so you know um and also was taken over by the abolith and is cursed by ghosts oh yeah she is cursed by ghosts i totally forgot with everything else that's going on she's still had a lot going on yeah we have we were kind of just hitting those missions on repeat for a while and then i think we just fell into a plot hole again yeah well you know the actually a couple of the ghost things you know i i have not forgotten about those um, you know, we, we haven't really had the time to run those last couple of weeks because, no. you know, other stuff, but, you know, you also have missed a couple of, uh, locations and bad roles, um, during your exploration phase. Um, so yeah, so, you know, the Buddy Brigade, they're, they're a little disjointed right now. I think that's, that's, that's one way to put it. I mean, I think it's just the nature of a lot of, like, long-term plot threads kind of come into boil. Um, you know, those, again, like, mid-period Claremont, here's all the character angst kind of, like, turn into a stew. Um, like, but I think they are, as a group, pretty good at pulling together, mostly. I can't speak for Yuria. I think I think Yuria's got some 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 trouble coming, <laughs> but like I think Ellie's thing is a shock thing. She's going to grow from it. Like Illyria, I don't know. Flop Flop Arm is just he's five, and we can talk to a five year old probably, and make that less bad. Um. Yeah, like I don't know. It's 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 a good story. I think. I think it's I think it's entertaining. But certainly, oh, I'm as having a, a blast. As, oh yeah, no, but certainly as a collective moment, like it's a lot. Uh, I just think it's kind of like a side effect of um. I think the the Sunday group just as a whole is very um character feelings oriented. And I think that's a little more, I think that's kind of amping that up a little bit. Um, it's not quite, like, the, the Friday group tends to be kind of very, like, mission-focused. And, like, they keep their uh, Outlands Masterpiece Theater to a, uh, um, it's more more dramatic, like, here's the end of the world coming, we're going to, like, um we're gonna we're gonna deal with that oh okay to use it not to as much as i as much as i hate invoking josh whedon right now 
which is a shame because again some of those shows that used to mean a lot to me um think of the terror team or as angel and we're probably more buffy i don't know if the toon squad is in that metaphor um but but i hope the toon squad is not xander <laughs> I, you know, I actually the way I think of the Toots call a lot of times is like um you know Jason Mendoza in the Good Place where he's like mm-hmm. I had a problem and then I threw a Molotov cocktail and then I had a different problem and I kind of feel like that's their approach to a lot of stuff but but anyway but we're more like the the buddy grade tends to be more like the like because they care about people and things they are naturally going to be more vulnerable to these kind of like angst if that makes sense. And I, I think Christian has mentioned before that like terror team sometimes literally just needs to de-stress by stabbing things. And you know, Sunday night, nobody watches Bob's Burgers or the Simpsons live anymore. You can just watch it the next day. So we're all, we're all looking to make some entertainment for each other. We're building these relationships and Tuesday team is, Dealing with whatever went on Tuesday, so it's a gamut. <laughs> yeah. No, I. It's. It, this is. You know. Like I said, I. I feel like everything is coming to a head with the Buddy Brigade. I. I don't think that's a bad thing by any stretch of imagination. It, it's making for great entertainment on Sunday night. <laughs> it, it just. You know. It, it. It. It just amuses me that you know. Um. And you know, this was purely coincidental. You know, I. I had nothing. That a lot mm-hmm. of stuff seems to be coming to a head. I mean, you know, 2021 has not been kind to the Buddy Brigade. Whew, and I blame it all on Yuria. <laughs> Just bad vibes. Uh, so, you know, while the Buddy Brigade is busy fracturing, um, the, the one other thing, there, there is one other session that I want to discuss really quick before we jump into... Uh, the rest of the podcast. And that's talking about the terror team's last mission before um, the Clockwork Army event, which we'll discuss in detail next episode. Um, they've, they went and visited Brunekeeper's Hall, uh, which is uh, an ancient dwarven library slash workshop. Um, the, buddy, or the terror team was the one who discovered uh, the Brunekeeper's Hall uh, you know, a few weeks ago and decided to explore it and learned that it had a deep connection to the seals um, is where some of, at least some of the magic of the seals was developed. They, they learned a lot about the, the making of the seals and also why the Feyrim were, you know, pretty certain that, you know, they, they're about to break, you know, about to get loose. That's because um, uh, this, how the seals work, they, they, they strengthen uh, this this the Sharn Wall, which is a another magical thing that you know, pretty draped in mystery. Um, so the, the the seals themselves kind of um, you know they 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 augment and they strengthen and they uh, stabilize the Sharn Wall. Um, and you know it was made so that if one or two or as long as well you know as long as one seal remains intact. The Sharn Wall, hypothetically, will be fine. However, when two seals are broken in a short period of time, that actually can cause, like, trigger basically a destabilization of the Sharn Wall. Um, you know, the closer the two seals get broken, 
um, you know, the more likely that it's going to destabilize. And it seems that's why the Feyrim are really pounding the drum on finding another seal and breaking it because um, they have a get out of jail free card. Um, they also learned some information about, um, you know, a couple of things that were going on there, particularly involving this lost fifth god that's involved in the Sharn Pantheon. Um, we've known for a while that the one of their barbarian characters, uh, Roka, uh, seems to have some sort of strange connection with the Outlands. And it turns out that she is serving an entity... Uh, which may or may not have connections to the Sharn Pantheon. And, you know, there seems to be a missing god in that Pantheon, and she might be serving that that god. So a lot of interesting stuff went on there. It was a, it was a great session, and it ended with a bit of a, a, a more disturbing revelation. Uh, as the party left the Runekeeper's Hall, um, they discovered that a cloud of bats was quickly approaching uh, as they had spent uh, the entire day in the library and it was nighttime by the time they were leaving. That cloud of bats included one vampire, the vampire Cartrum, who had arrived at Runekeeper's Hall with business unknown. Um, and... Uh, Clearly, Cartrum is up to something, and his business with the Outlands Exploratory Company isn't over yet. So, funny thing with uh, the day after that session, mm-hmm. um, I watched the that D and D art documentary, Eyes of the Beholder, and they actually there's a big section on Planescape, and they mentioned uh, Roka's lady in it. So, I have now seen a picture of that and know what she looks like. <laughs> which was a funny coincidence that I did not go searching for. I was just like, I'm going to watch a D&D art doc. Yep. She, um, th- that character is very much a famous part of D&D lore, especially the Planescape, um, you know, uh, campaign setting. Uh, very central to it. And that's all we'll say, say on that for, for risk of spoiling, spoiling the players um, as, um, you know, uh, the the entire Outlands campaign draws very heavily from Planescape. Um, it's very much inspired by and pulls a lot of lore and bits from from that particular campaign setting. But that's enough about the planes. Wait, is that why the Buddy Brigade is going through so much torment? Bad puns. Puns. Oh. Let's 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 jump into our deep dive for the evening. Uh, every every episode, we talk a little bit about some lore from the Outlands, um, whether that is some sort of NPC or some bit of um, mythology or what have you. It's the guest's choice. And what did you choose to talk about this week, James? The vampire we were just talking about, Cartram, who is probably the NPC. I've had the most interaction with um, and probably the one I've had the most impact on outside of maybe this hooligan. So Cartrum. <laughs> oh, Cartrum. Um, James, why don't you tell us a little bit about him? Um, well, Cartrum is a vampire historian who has been in the Outlands for was about 400 years. 
Yeah. Um, he was sired by a vampire named Galthias, um, who is kind of looming in the background of the campaign, um, who had kind of a, a posse that included Cartram. Uh, apparently, his brother, the Lord of S- the Galthias' brother, the Lord of Skulls, who is a lich, who also has ties to Malkador and Mara. Um, well, the Lord of Skulls actually wasn't a part of Galthias's like direct they circle. Were friends or something. Well, he's they were his brother. brother. That's what I say. Okay, well, yeah. that, there's a connection there. That's what I meant. Yeah. Yeah. So they're connected because they're brothers, and Velez was the other probably core of the the main group, and like. Her and Galthias and Cartram were in some kind of weird thruple. I don't know. And uh, Cartram, we didn't know this until very recently, but he uh, kidnapped the egg of the black dragon that's Trixie Alana, who, you know, we've talked about in previous episodes, and was the one that gave him to Galthias as a pet and led to all of that drama. Um, and then. Basically, Cartram has alternated between being a historian and apparently various vampire shenanigans that we're only really now learning about how bad that all was and exactly what exactly his crimes were. Because when he first appeared, he wasn't necessarily evil-seeming besides the fact that he was a vampire, which, you know, can go a lot of ways. Yeah, no, he, uh, so Cartram, from a design standpoint, in terms of when I was building out the campaign, Cartram was one of several NPCs that, you know, um, their ultimate alignment, to use outdated D&D speak, um, was up to the party's choices. Um, you know, Cartram, you know, he, he's a vampire, so he, he, he does kill people, um, he turns people, you know, he, he has several vampire spawn. Um, however, you know, while he had an academic interest in the seals, he, at least on the outset, didn't seem like he was interested in breaking them. He also, uh, he, he also, you know, kind of seemed to have a, a little bit of affection towards the Outlands Exploratory Company just because they were something new and something different. Um, so, you know, I, I really left him ambiguous you know for a reason he he could have either gone the way of good or the 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 way of evil um it just certain player choices um (laughs) you vomit and destroy one artifact in one tomb that was a giant mess that that created yeah so Here's here's the thing about Cartram. You know, Cartram had, and you know, you guys asked about it when you first realized that there was this connection here, uh, that he had this vampire sire. He he has a complicated relationship with all of them. The 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 backstory to Cartram, the hidden backstory to Cartram, is that you know he he was a willing participant in all like Golthias Golthias is your you know was basically your Vlad the Impaler type, you know, vampire. You know, like let us let us drink in the blood of entire villages and leave their you know decapitated heads on spikes and all that stuff. You know, like Castlevania Dracula, Dracula. You know, um, when he's angry. Yeah, like and 
you know, Cartram, Cartram, you know, he's more of, um, I don't want to say reluctant, but he's just not, he, he just, he, he went along and he did all of that. You know, he, he would go along and like, okay, well, we're, I guess we're going and pillaging, you know, a village for some reason. But, you know, that, that he was much more academic. You know, he was attracted to this entire idea of immortality, um, being a part of history, having access to the, the, the sides of the world that people don't usually see. Um, you know, he, he, he developed an interest in the seals. Um, he really is interested in learning how to make one. Um, but... You know, the other driving thing, in addition to this entire, like, I, you know, basically, you know, to, to borrow a phrase from Hamilton, um, you know, Cartram truly wanted to be in the room where it happened. That that was his reason for getting turned and his reason for that. That was one of his driving motivations. Um, the other thing was he, he had a complex when it came to Golthias. Um, he loved Golthias dearly. Um, he also resented Golthias a lot. Um, the, the, the reasons being, you know, he, he, he loved Golthias and they had a very intense relationship. Um, however, Golthias was very much evil and never seemed to be sated as vampires often aren't. Um, and that, that really created a complex in Cartrum. Um, also there was the stuff going on with Velez too, um, because Cartram and Velez very much have a love hate relationship, um, that, um, they, they vehemently disliked each other because, um, you know, Golthias would actively pit the two of them against each other and basically just use, use one to torment the other. They also had this like deep connection because they were the only two who really understood what it was like to be them, you know, because they were both involved with this sadistic, crazy. I don't want to say crazy. That's not the right word. This this sadistic, deranged, um, just sociopathic vampire. Um, and, and, you know, they shared a deep connection about that. Um, and, you know, Cartram decided to try a different path to, you know, get, get, you know, win Golthias's favor, which turned out to be the Black Dragon Trixie. Um, and Trixie used the insecurities of both Cartram and Velez to get to Golthias. And, you know, that's what ultimately led to Golthias, you know, Golthias's death. And Velez, of course, blamed Cartram for this. Cartram blamed himself. Um, Cartram was the one who built the uh, mausoleum to Golthias and had the group explored that more fully, they would have seen, um, a little bit more signs of, you know, that. That was very much Cartram, who was the one who built a a monument to his, you know, sire. Um, so yeah, so yeah, that, that's kind of like what what's motivates Cartram. And now, now, you know, what's going on is that you know he he kind of let the company exist in the in the Outlands, you know, 
in his eyes. You know, he, he, he let this group of people kind of take root. And how did, you know, that turn out? They, be, you know, they, they befriended his greatest mortal enemy, the Black Dragon Trixie. Um, you know, and led to Velez getting banished uh, back to the Shadowfell to who knows what has happened to her. And so he's pissed. He is really pissed. So, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Now, as I say, that, that whole situation blew up big time and kind of dominated the campaign for the last couple months. So... James, what 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 intrigued you about Cartrum? Um, you know, I'm actually just a good couple things. Uh, I'm a big horror guy, just in general. Um, you know, I love that stuff. Um, like Dawn of the Dead, the Romero version is probably my favorite movie. Like I used to watch TNT Monster Vision even as a little kid. I'll throw you, I'll throw you an embarrassing childhood story in that, like at one point around like third grade, I was so afraid of vampires i slept with a cross for a little while um <laughs> yeah that's amazing <laughs> oh yeah it was it was incredibly dorky but it was like a th- it was like a thing like it's something about like the idea of those like things that looked like people but were dangerous something about that like really like hit a nerve like at that age for some reason and like in general i like a lot of that kind of stuff like like i said buffy the vampire slayer is one of my favorite tv shows like i think there's something kind of interesting in those figures but i do like spooky stuff in general and that actually plays into um kind of the character creation which we'll talk about in a minute um but also i like the idea of the kind of neutral immortal figure a lot like um one of my favorite characters in sandman is uh hob gathling um if you know him who's basically the guy who's like i don't want to die Death's like okay and then he just kind of lives for, you know, who knows how long. He, he's alive at the end of the series. He lives for centuries. And, like, he's just kind of a person who goes around, you know, experiencing that, like, breadth and depth of human history. And so, like, the idea of, like, a spooky guy who's kind of, like, the key to, like, the story of the Outlands was interesting. And, like, kind of played into the stuff I, I'm personally interested in. I think that the character I'd be interested in, too. Mm-hmm. I definitely agree. I mean, you you were the person who pursued the original relationship with Cartrum in terms of writing letters and everything, and it, it has been, I will say, incredibly unfortunate to feel like we have lost a friend all of a sudden and oh, had yeah. him turn into one of our largest threats, and it's very demoralizing because... Cleaver has not had a chance to really apologize, and I I think Cleaver does not often apologize. <laughs> yeah. But this would be a time where I think she would feel that and would recognize that uh, shenanigans went too far, and uh, like she hurts someone who may be a bad person with bad ties, but. That doesn't mean that is the only thing they will be in their life. And she's probably dumb enough to, if she were still alive, to go and like try and just be like, oh, in your downtime, what are you doing? Oh, I'm going to go to the tower and apologize to Cartrum in person instead of, you know, writing a letter. But 
Well, I was going to say that that feeds into the other question that I have on our outline, which is who is Cartram going to kill first? Um, well, we know the answer to that one now. I mean, Ferris uh, probably. I mean, Ferris probably. Let's be uh-huh. real. Yeah, That's, no. I, it wasn't the fact that Ferris somehow gets out of everything. Um, but Ferris is actively taunting him, too. So, like, like once I realized, like, you know, because I... You know, I, I was as you talked on the previous episode. I wrote the letter that like we're like, hey, where do you stand on this? Um, because as as we've learned in real life, many times recently, like when you're faced with like absolute evil, if you tell people like, hey, where do you stand on absolute evil, and they freak out on you, it tells you what side they're on. <laughs> like, no, that's 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 a really good point, and you know, I I think you know honestly. Uh, the 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 for Cartram it was the realization that you know you guys were going to and because you guys were and you know Cartram kind of realized this you know you guys tend to befriend charity cases and you guys kind of pick out, you know, you, you guys cannot say no to a sad story. And <laughs> uh, Trixie definitely has a sad story. And when he kind of realized what route you guys were going on, uh, that that was kind of his, like, last straw there, was that you, you he knew that you guys were going to end up picking Trixie um, over, over Velez. And, you know, that meant that you were picking Trixie over him. Uh, yeah, from his point of view, I can totally see that. That's probably not how we we saw it. Um, oh yeah, no, you yeah. guys, you guys, you guys were not. I don't think fully cog. You you knew there was some connection there, but well, you know, it, I don't think you guys realized the depth of that. No, and part of part of the way I was playing the the letter writing relationship was. Like this guy's potentially dangerous. He might be okay. We don't know enough. Everything, everything we were getting was like you could. And I, and I'll say this is a, this is probably good plotting on your part, Christian. Where like everything that would happen with him was on that line where we couldn't say for sure. So like, and we so we proceeded with caution. Like we, that's kind of how we played it. We were friendly. And we, you know, tried to, and we helped him out when he needed it. We pulled the stake from him. Like, but unfortunately, situations got out of our hands, mostly. Like, Cleaver was the only Buddy Brigade person on that mission that, you know, where the, uh, the was desecrated. Yeah. Like, so, you know, like, the Buddy Brigade didn't, like, tip over that relationship, per se. It's just an unfortunate, um, collateral damage you know it's it's not very often you know for for a dungeons and dragons campaign that is basically three campaigns rolled into one with as many moving parts and people as there are in this campaign you know the cartoon relationship really was the first time that one group truly stepped on the toes of another group (laughs) Yeah, like that, that 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 it does not happen like very very often. Um, uh, I think they just didn't and, know that it was that cartridge related, honestly, until it was yeah. too late. I think that's what happened there. 
Um, well, so uh, do you think Tartrum can be redeemed? <sighs> yes. I lean towards no, honestly. I like. I think, you know, he tried to kill Trixie in midair. Um, I mean, maybe, maybe there's something there. I don't know, but like, it sounds like he's pretty like fangs out at this point, and he's going to not stop unless Trixie and us are dead. I I mean, I think part of it is we haven't come to him in the best way i mean he was nice enough to give us the warning but i i, I feel like there are oh, see, you didn't read the letter you didn't read the letter no <laughs> see i got the letter and that is a letter that is not like that's not like a, a letter where from someone who's like oh yeah we can talk this out later that's like uh i will i will cut your throat and that I have not already cut your throat is just me being kind because you unstaked me. No, but I, I mean, there, there is a point where if really what he was doing was acting out, if you do have a friend who is going through a really rough time because they're caught between two sides and one of the sides has actively been abusive to them which is what a lot of Cartram's relationship with Golthias has seemed to have been like Golthias is hella abusive we've seen it before with the people who he does not care about like Trixie but I, I think if we can try and reach out in a more comforting way that uh, Floparm the five-year-old goblin child is not prepared to <laughs> I think we could at least get back to things being better. I mean, we did not come and say, oh, you're a vampire. We're going to try and kill you now because you're evil. Like, Cleaver came in and it was literally, oh, hey, here's these wolves who are hungry. I'm going to feed them so we don't need to fight. Oh, here's all these vampires who need to feed. <laughs> here's my veins. Well, I think I think also the as we unspool this, like the depth of Cartrim's actions like are, are starting to seem larger than maybe like we expected i think we were all kind of worried like where's he getting food from and that was a thing we were all prepared to deal with but mm-hmm. like i don't know i feel like velez is trying to commit a genocide so <laughs> and he seems to be on that side at this point and that's tricky like i said he could if he if he showed evidence of turning around in some way, maybe. I think that would be, but I also think that would be a really hard sell to like 90% of the adventuring parties. Like, imagine Yalmir being like, okay, we're going to make peace with Kartram. <laughs> Fair. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, we do have one more section to get to. In the episode tonight, yeah, let's let's go and uh, let's let's do a, have a quick talk about Doctor Worm, um, James. Interestingly enough, you know you're you're another one of those players who kind of got tossed into the deep end, as you know this is your first Dungeons and Dragons campaign. Um, so, what were your 
plans for Dr. Worm? What tell us just tell us a bit about Dr. Worm. Um so you know, I've wanted to do something like this for kind of a long time. It's just one of those things where I never had the right group of people. There are a couple of near misses with like uh, aberrant of all games um, that just kind of fell apart. So, and you know, since you've been DMing, you know, I know you've had fairly full groups, but I, in case a slot opened up, I was prepared to jump in. Um, but I've never really had a chance to deep dive into it. Um, so, yeah, deep end, but I was, you know, it's kind of deep end I'm, I'm prepared to dive into. Um, now, kind of the thing that kind of informed character creation for me is um you know i'm i do write a lot um you know i've been self-publishing comics for a long time um you know i helped write a pilot for a kids rock band and various other things so like making characters isn't necessarily the trickiest thing um but with something like this i wanted to go in kind of open and kind of also to make it easy on myself for a first time because I knew I'd be learning game rules, which is a whole thing. Um, and I knew I'd also be kind of learning like the soft skills, you know, the stuff like role playing, which really isn't my strong suit and I'm trying to get better at and like knowing how to balance like your character stuff with other people's and making sure they have time and all those, you know, just developing a lot of those kind of skills too. So I tried to play come up with a character that would just be kind of easy to slide into. Um, and the kind of the genesis for Dr. Rome was more like aesthetic. I kind of think of him as like magic using vampire hunter D. Cause like my original notion of the campaign was just like, Oh, we're going to go on like one-off missions and do stuff. And it's going to be, you know, you just need like a kind of a simple character concept that you can slide into whatever. Um, and so knowing me, I like some fiddly bits, but not like as fiddly as like a, as a wizard. Um, so Sorcerer was kind of like the natural, um, you know, I get to do some cool stuff, but it's not like I have to pay attention to like, how does a patron work like a warlock? I don't know. Um, now I know, but I didn't when I started. Uh, so with a sorcerer, it was just kind of an easy class that played towards like the kind of stuff I like to do. And you know, you're the like, first okay. person. You're the first person that I've heard describe sorcerer as an easy class. I, <laughs> I mean, like it's fiddly, but like it's not that fiddly. Like it's just like okay, he's got spells. They come from him. Like, they, you know, it's just a simple magic user. Like, wizards have all that, like, you have to prepare them. And, like, there's all this, like, learning stuff. And, like, warlocks have the patron side of things. And, like, that stuff is more harder to get when you haven't played the game before, I think. I, I, I think they've also done a better job of explaining how spells work and in, in a way that used to not make any sense for me at all. So I just usually played a non-magical class or just went with the Wujin. Yeah, and see, the thing is I knew like a fighter would probably be too plain for me, especially like not knowing the role-playing side or the the larger mythology very well um hmm. 
that would have been hard to slide into. Like it just would have been kind of kind of boring. I, mean, I think there's a reason why one of, one of the characters that's been retired is a fighter in this campaign. Um, and so I kind of went into him with kind of this loose, like spooky kind of aesthetic thing. And then contact with the actual game kind of shifted that. Um, Cause my first mission was the one where core went berserk. Um, and I was like, I don't know what's going on, but I love this. And I am a hundred percent into whatever is happening here. And then the, uh, <laughs> the buddy brigade kind of, coalesced around the same time so i kind of just leaned into that like and and magic missile ended up being kind of my signature spell so i just kind of made him like a spooky gunslinger like he's like the stable you know he's a little bit older than a lot of the characters that aren't like hundreds of years old you know he's around my age in his late 30s and he's had some experience adventuring before um there's actually a, a bit of a character background that like I mentioned like once and like nobody really picked up on it. And it was like, it hasn't really come back, but that like sorcerers, I guess that, you know, I read that there's they sometimes have like an inciting incident. And hmm. for Dr. Worm, that is, uh, think of like an alien abduction, but with mind flares. And then when mm-hmm. he, he has the missing time, then he comes back. And at that point, then the magic starts to emerge. And then he kind of adjusts from that experience, has a time as like a small time adventure. And then he comes to the Outlands. And then it's been very much like about what's happened to him since he's been here. So what what do you think is going to happen to Dr. Worm as you guys enter the Summer of Blood? Um, he's had a... When you think about it, he's probably been through, besides Ellie, almost more than maybe any one character. You know, there's the core stuff with him dying. Um, there's... I mean, the, the Wicker Maze. There's... Um, losing Makador, Cleaver, and Mama. There's the the Uria stuff. There's the Kartram stuff. Um, he's very focused at this point, I think, on solving the problems that are in front of him. You know, Reese condition is another one. Like, and he knows that he's probably going to have to either help kill Kartram or know that's going to happen. And he knows that they're probably going to have to fight core sooner or later. So I think he's stealing himself up for that. And after that, we'll see what happens. He has to live, of course. And he has to, um, we'll see what kind of condition he's in, but I could definitely see him having the, the wherewithal to like, step back at least briefly um which is different than james the player who you know loves doing this stuff and will keep doing it as long as he can um but i can definitely see like him taking a break the character taking a break at some point after the major crises have passed um and i've been kind of thinking something he may have to do is 
learn how to use the seals from the Sahuligan, actually. Because only one other character speaks Sahuligan, and Dr. Worm has done the most to help them. So they like him the best. And he also doesn't want to control the seals, so that makes him the best person, you know? Like, mm -hmm. the person who doesn't want the power is probably the person who should most have it, if that makes sense. Um, no, I, I get it. Like, so I think that's where he's leading. And even if he does, like, take a break after probably the Summer of Blood, which is probably pretty likely, I could definitely see him returning to active duty, and he would probably still be focused on helping out around the outpost during the meantime because he's been very community oriented and also like found family oriented in terms of the buddy brigade stuff too. So I think, I don't think he would go away forever. I think he might take a break and then come back after this major crisis has passed. Well, I look forward to seeing how Dr. Worm's story continues that's that's it for this week guys um thank you for listening to this episode of tales from the outlands um if you want to find out more about the campaign you can go to our website at www.talesfromtheoutlands.com you can also go and find our lore database uh which is available uh in the comments or not in the comments uh in the uh, description of this episode uh, if you want to uh, talk more with James about his character or all the shenanigans that take place in uh, this campaign, James, where can they find you at? Uh, I am on Twitter at uh, JamesMoore1278. Um, you can find my comic stuff at uh, TwoHeadedMonsterComics.com mostly. And um, I also have, if you have Amazon Prime, the pilot I helped write for we are the Shazbots is free and so if you have anybody that likes kid rock bands that's a thing you can you can see as well and luke where can they find you at uh right now as i'm still job searching and waiting to hear back my twitter is on protected mode but you can find me at at coltreg that's k-o-l-t-r-e-g or you can go to my website lukehair.com l-u-k-e h-e-r-r -R. and uh yeah if you just look up coltreg k-o-l-t-r-e-g you can find most of the stuff that i've done like my comics on gumroad and christian if people want to find you and the articles that you write where where can they find that information well my writing can be found at comicbook.com which is a cbs owned website uh that covers entertainment news i am their resident DD expert and pokemon journalist uh, and you can find me on Twitter at SeahofferCBus, uh, where I talk a lot about Dungeons & Dragons. Um, once again, thank you very much for listening, and um, until next time, keep adventuring. And please, we don't need Space Jam 2 discourse online <laughs> to any degree. <laughs>